We're going to continue our study in Ezra and Nehemiah. And last week we just did an overview, and, uh, or kind of an introduction, and I left uh, bored uh, because introductions are usually boring. So I was thinking, I told Natalie, I think everybody was maybe a little bored just because that's the nature of uh, introductions. But this week hopefully we'll get into a little more uh, substance, however, uh, I felt it necessary to return to something that I brought out last week and explain a little further what I meant by that. So, everybody have a handout that wants one? Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll ask God to bless our time, and we'll dive in. Father, whenever we are attempting to talk about your word or teach from it, we are in desperate need of your help and assistance. The Spirit is the one who must illumine our minds to these truths and to see them as you would intend for us to see them. And for any of these truths from Scripture to have effect in our hearts and minds, we need your help by your Spirit. So we pray for that now. And we, not, we don't want to just know the law uh, in your instruction, in your word, we want to embrace it and love it and delight in it and meditate upon it and have it change and shape us as a people. So I ask that now, that this class and the others as we study Ezra would be um, furthering that God agenda of yours to make us like your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right. Well, um, so last week we talked about the fact of just kind of going over Ezra and Nehemiah as really w- was originally one book in the Old Testament. Um, we label it under the, the books of history uh, that would begin in Joshua and it would run through um, Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther. Okay. Now, there was one particular aspect of that historical element that I drew out. What was that? Do you remember? It has reference to one, a people. Okay. Who was that? Israel, right? That's um, easy part to dis- discern. And specifically, when you're dealing in the, in the area of Joshua through uh, Esther, you're, you're really dealing with that particular people in reference to their land. So the connection between Israel and what we call the promised land, and that land of Israel. It's tracing their history of that. The reason we break it up in our English Bibles that way uh, is because even though Genesis through Deuteronomy has Israel history in it, they're not in the land yet. Matter of fact, it traces from world history to the time that they're ready to go into the land. And so those first five books, that Pentateuch or the law, that was delivered to Israel in the wilderness before, in those 40 years prior to entering into the land. And it was forming them as a covenant people. They were getting very important information about where they've come from and who God is and uh, helping them make sense of the world through God's creation in Genesis 1 and the formation of humanity and, and all of those very important things. Oh, and the entrance of sin into the world. 
and of course traces the promise already of the, pro- of the one who would come and uh, destroy the works of the devil. So that's all in the beginning. But really, once you get into Joshua now, they're entering the land, and it's that history that recounts them going into the land and arising all the way up to that pinnacle of the time of Solomon, really, was their pinnacle. And the temple uh, being uh, built and uh, Solomon reigning in wisdom. And then from him, at the end of his life, uh, the deterioration of these people, even the tearing apart of the nation itself between Israel and Judah, the ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes. It traces that history of that. But then they were finally deported out of their land under God's judgment. And then God brings them back into the land, okay? And that is um, what we call the post-exile books or the post-exilic books. These are what we're looking at now. This is the story of God bringing them back into their land. And God has a purpose and an agenda in doing this. And so last week I said that we want to look at these books As we study Ezra and Nehemiah, we want to look at them both theologically and Christologically. On the one hand, theologically, and these two are very related, but distinct in some ways. So let me just explain what I meant. When we're saying theologically, we're reading these Old Testament books in a way that shows that we believe these are um, books that reveal to us who God is. Okay? Who is this God that we are talking about? And so we will look at these Old Testament passages and see attributes of God that come out. And that will be what we're going to work into in today's lesson in the first chapter of Ezra. His sovereignty and his faithfulness stand out to us. Okay, it's very clear. You can't read these books and not say God is both sovereign and faithful. It would be impossible to read them unless you just didn't believe what you were reading to see that this God is sovereign and he is faithful. The things that he does in Ezra and Nehemiah are really amazing and elevate his sovereignty and faithfulness or rather display for his people and for us his sovereignty and faithfulness. Now, this is what I wanted to explain and uh, had somebody ask me about it afterwards. Um, and it was the idea of reading it Christologically. And I think if I were to say it again, I would say, I would say that we should say Christocentrically instead of Christologically. Okay? Christocentrically. What does that mean? Well, the word Christ, of course, is in that word, right? The word Christ... Um, uh, or the, uh, the, the Hebrew transliteration of that, Messiah, okay? So you have the Messiah, the Christ, um, was when you remember, some of you remember when I'm, I'm teaching in, um, around Christmas time, I give a certain message every year. It's either uh, put in at Christmas Eve or uh, some other time. You know, I do this out of, second Ti- or out of 1 Timothy 4 where Paul says, um, it is a true and faithful saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I just break that up word by word. And that word Christ, I always say, when you read that word Christ, think 
There's a number of things you can think of, but think of the word promise, okay? You think of the word Christ, and here, I can actually use my board here. Now, I did go today and buy a dual pack of black markers from Walgreens. I got to the church with my dual pack of black markers that I paid my hard-earned money for. I opened up the package, neither one of them worked. They were both dry as a bone. That's frustrating. So I was going through a trial. I was walking through a trial, and I was good and angry. And so I'm glad I read that book that we're recommending this week. Okay, so anyway, enough of that. Christocentric. This is how we're going to read our Old Testament, or one of the lenses through which we're going to read our Old Testament. And, uh, and when we're thinking of the word Christ, we're thinking of the word promise. Now, again, I'm aware of the fact that when a Jew would read the word Christ, he's thinking king, essentially. He's thinking promised king. But no matter what, the Messiah was what they were waiting for, and those who have rejected Christ as their Messiah are still waiting for their Messiah because God had promised this Messiah. This Christocentric idea that Christ is at the center as you are reading your Old Testament This promise of the Christ runs through the whole entire Old Testament. That you're waiting for this one. Where was he first promised? Genesis 3.15, right? As soon as Adam fell into sin, God steps on the scene and he makes a promise. Uh... Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel appearance, is right at the fall. God steps in and says, through one of your descendants, essentially, this promised seed, if you will, the head of the serpent would be crushed. The the, uh, works of the serpent would be destroyed. He was going to destroy both sin and death. From that point on, you are tracing that promise through the entire Old Testament. That is a way, by the way, to faithfully read the Old Testament and even interpret what is going on here. All the way to get to Ezra and Nehemiah. You're in Ezra and Nehemiah. You're at the very end of the Old Testament. It's about to be concluded at this point. You're still waiting for God to fulfill this promise. Okay? When I'm saying that we read the the Scriptures Christocentrically, it means that whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, this is an un... Well, especially through the Old Testament and those books, this is an unfolding of God's one purpose and plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. That's a way you can read your Old Testament. And I would argue it's a right way to do it. Even back into these first 11 chapters that are so critical, you, you see this promise in Genesis 3 of this one that God would send, this human you knew would come through Eve. You look in chapter 4, you see Abel the righteous one. You're like, oh, wait a minute here, maybe God's going to answer this promise here. Abel dies, right? And it's certainly not Cain, 
who was going to destroy the works of the devil. But you keep tracing that line to the Seth, right? Right down to Noah and to uh, Shem and to Abram and then to Isaac, then to Jacob, not Esau, but Jacob. And the promise keeps unfolding to David, to a triple, well, first of all, a particular tribe in Israel, Judah, then to David himself. And you have all those genealogies in the Old Testament. They are not there just for factual history. Oh, that's nice that we have all these genealogies of who begat who and who begat whom. This is all preserving through this one people that promise. This helps us when we do this Christocentrically and we understand as Paul says in um, Ephesians 1, he says, making known to us the mystery, no, uh, yeah, making known to us a mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. When we understand that he has this one purpose and we understand that this whole Old Testament is that trail of seeing God unfold progressively this plan and help make more specific who it would eventually be so that he could be recognized when he arrives, then when we're reading in that way, we're always looking in and as we're reading it, we're asking how does this passage or how does this book rather How does this, what was serving the purpose of God in this one plan? And the reason I'm bringing that up is because the whole, the theme of our uh, study is, um, hold on, let me pull it up here. (laughs) Oh, God preparing a people and a place for the Messiah. Ezra and Nehemiah is a a book, or these two books are about God preparing a people and a place to usher in the Messiah. Um, This keeps us, by the way, from being, instead of Christocentric with the Old Testament, being Israel-centric. The reason that becomes a problem is because then Christians look into the Old Testament and they don't see relevance for themselves. Well, this is all about one particular people. I heard somebody say once about Hebrews, they go, oh, I I haven't really spent much time in that because that's for, you know, that's for the Jewish people. And I wanted to pull my hair out because that's not in keeping with this progressive plan that God has unfolded to show us what the Old Testament is all about, what all of Scripture is all about, this one plan and purpose of God to, in Christ, unite all things, reconcile all things. So you can't even read in these Old Testament books without realizing what he says is going to happen in Revelation 21 and 22, right? You see what's going to happen in the end. Well, this is all working out that plan. And how is it going to be worked out? Through Christ himself. Okay? So, we, we're reading this Christocentrically. We're seeing that it is a people, uh, that what's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah is a people and a place being prepared for the Messiah. Remember, they had to be in the land. There had to be a temple. There had to be a Jerusalem. There had to be the Passover feast. And even later on in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, when all of these Jews were descending upon this place, this all had to be in place. There had to be a priesthood. There had to be sacrifices. 
Well, during that Babylonian captivity, none of that was happening. The land was left desolate. It was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The wall was broken down. And so this is God now moving in history through men like Cyrus and others that will come up to prepare this place and these people to fulfill his promise of the Messiah. So this idea of Christocentricness then is a way of reading the Bible uh, that we are tracing God's unfolding plan throughout history, the one plan and purpose he has in Christ to eventually unite and restore all things in him. Okay, and so we're looking at where we're at in that um, in that uh, plan. Now, this requires us to read our Old Testament in light of the New Testament. This requires us to see the Bible as one book by one divine author. Yes, progressively given out and revealed over a period of millennia, I get that, but it's one book, one author, which means there's an intention here of us, or an intentionality that requires us, or allows us rather, to, after we see what God does in Christ, after what Paul says over and over again, the mystery that was hidden for ages past has now been revealed in Christ. And I'm the primary apostle to go out and let you know what God was doing this whole time, what he was up to this whole time. I'm proclaiming that mystery. Now that we know that, and we know the end of the story, because he hasn't just left us without that record too, we can now look back into the Old Testament and say, oh, I see what God was doing here. Oh, I see what he was doing here, all in his purpose and plan to bring in the Messiah. I took a Hebrew class. I might have told you this last week, but I took a Hebrew class and once, and one of the assignments was uh, uh, to read through and study through a book called from exegesis to exposition. It's trying to teach Hebrew students how to study the Old Testament in Hebrew and then see what it says and see what it means and, and then bring that and put that into a sermon or a lesson, okay? And at the end of this book, it has all these um, examples of Old Testament lessons and sermons given from different passages. And I read through those and in my review, I was supposed to say kind of what I thought about all those. And I put in there that this was, uh, they were, some of them were very good. They just don't mention Jesus at all. Like any one of those, I could walk into any given Jewish synagogue on any given Saturday, read that lesson, and they would have no problem with what I just said. But see, that's actually problematic because that means that message isn't Christian in the truest sense. It, it, it's like reading the Old Testament 
like a Jew would read the Old Testament, which can be helpful in your understanding of it. But you have to remember that even Paul said when they read the law, there's a veil over their eyes. They miss the whole point. And when you turn to the Lord, the veil's removed and the Spirit shines His light on it and you see Jesus. You see Christ. You see Him in the types. You see Him in the prophecies. You see Him in the general movement and sway of what God is doing and you know where God is headed with everything. The Jew doesn't see that. So when we study the Old Testament, we shouldn't just be coming to moral conclusions about, hey, be like David in this situation, but not in this one, or dare to be a Daniel, or whatever it is. That's, those things are okay. There is place for those. I'm not saying it's not. Paul makes it very clear that we can do that, that these were set down as examples of what to do and not to do. I understand that. But if we miss out on what God is doing moving through that course of history through that one particular people to bring in the Messiah and his greater plan, then we're no better, friends, than the Jews that Jesus battled his whole ministry and said to them, you're searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have life and they testify about me. So we are the people that can read into these things, not in an artificial or false way. We can read into them the Christ, not in an artificial and false way. And it can begin with, where are we at in the progression of history uh, in this particular book? Ezra and Nehemiah, we are the people being brought back to the land. Why? Just so they can enjoy their land? Is that God's purpose in this? No. Bringing them back to the land to fulfill his ultimate promise through them to bring in a Messiah. And there are many other things, I think, as we walk through these books that we will see that Christocentricity. Okay, so I just wanted to explain that a little bit, what I meant by that. And um, I hope that's helpful. And um, okay, now, let's look at where we're at this week and uh, on our handout. You know what? Actually, I want to do something else. Hold on one second. I drank a Red Bull, so I'm all amped up, and I had a nap. So I got plenty of energy. Before we move on to that, let me give you, another, let me give you an example, not out of Ezra and Nehemiah. But let me give you an example from the very first two chapters of the Bible and connecting them to what we looked at in Romans 5 months ago, okay? Who, the, the character introduced to us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it, the first human uh, is Adam and Eve who becomes his wife. Now, we can study about Adam and we can study about God making Adam and we can study about Adam in the image of God and we can study about the importance of Adam and Eve in that covenant relationship of marriage that's so sacred 
in the institution of family and all of those things. I mean, those are great things studied. That's what the text is teaching, no doubt about it. The text teaches us, it, it forms what humanity is, it shows us God's intention for male and female, it shows us his intention for human beings, it shows us his intention for marriage and the foundation of the family. And that dominion mandate that mankind's supposed to have as God's vice regents and supposed to be exercising his dominion over the world and all these things. And that is right. But now I want to show you something in keeping with this Christocentricity. Okay, look at Romans 5. And some of you that have been going through our study on Sunday mornings may remember some of this. Paul is teaching about peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, okay? And he does something in verse 12 of chapter 5 that is very interesting. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and now he's talking about Adam, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now listen to this. Who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And Paul's whole point in this passage is that just as Adam was the representative head, some would say covenantal head over all humanity, so that what he did spread to all humanity is exactly what he's teaching, through his one sin, Sin and death then spread to all men and therefore judgment to all men. He's saying that Adam was a type. Now, we're talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 here. That already Paul, when he's reading his Bible, Paul's reading his Bible, the Apostle Paul, he's already reading it Christocentrically from the very first chapters. Adam was a type of this one who is to come. This is why we call Jesus the last Adam. Not the second, by the way. That's a misnomer. The last Adam. There's not another one coming. Who represented his people. Who went toe-to-toe with the devil and was obedient. And through his one ultimate act not of disobedience but obedience in contrast Adam doesn't make people unrighteous actually makes them righteous in what he did and in that he divides up humanity into two groups of people people who are in Adam and people who are in Christ this is why Paul's teaching on in Christ is so important that phrase in Christ Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? If you're in Adam, you're under sin's guilt and condemnation and penalty. If you are in Christ, who was the one to come of whom Adam was a type or a picture, then you are safe. But here's the point of why I'm bringing that up. 
it isn't as though Paul is reading Jesus back into Adam. In other words, Paul isn't saying, oh, let me think of a good illustration for this about, you know, the representative head thing and, and being in Christ. Let me think about that. Oh, I know. You know what would be a good example would be Adam. I'll just bring that out. What, Adam, what Paul is saying is that Adam, when we read it, when it happened, as he was made, he was the type of the one to come. This was all part of the plan from the beginning. And when you read Adam now, you should see in him a type of the Christ, the last and far greater Adam, who has brought to us eternal life and not eternal condemnation. You see that? It's not as though he's reading these things back into it. So never should a preacher ever again preach about Adam and Eve without at least making one just for my sake, so I wouldn't become agitated with the mess. Just one connection to what God was ultimately doing there. What he was ultimately showing us is our need of the one to come, okay? Then, if you look at this in Ephesians chapter 5, and I bring this out in the weddings that I've done and in my premarital counseling, it's so important to understand this in um, marriages and to see what God's intention here was. Um, first, oh, by the way, it's Natalie and I's 29th anniversary today. So let's give us a round of applause. <laughs> let's give us a round of applause. 29 years, wow. So anyway, Genesis uh, 2 in, in, is connected here to Ephesians 5 because in Genesis 2, of course, uh, God institutes this covenant relationship of marriage uh, between a man and a woman, and he, um, he says, uh, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper for him, of course. He formed Eve. Um, Adam names the li- uh, all the creatures, and, but there wasn't found one fit for him, and so God makes Eve uh, from man, and, and then the Lord in this um, marriage ceremony of you know, walking the woman down the aisle, so to speak. This is why I think that's such an important part of our uh, pictures in our marriage is this idea that uh, the bride is being presented to Adam. The Eve is being presented to Adam. And he beholds her and he's like, this is last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, Moses interjects here in Genesis 2, uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, now, in Ephesians 5, when Paul wants to talk about marriage, and he's talking about, verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Then he gives instructions for, in verse 25, for husbands. And then he skip, skip down to verse 29. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh. So he's, he's kind of taking from or teaching from this one flesh idea. No, no man has ever hated his own flesh. Um, uh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now listen to this. And he quotes Moses as Moses beheld this ceremony as God's teaching him and he sees what's going on. Moses said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Genesis 2. Already, Paul looks at that marriage ceremony and he says, this is a mystery. In other words, something that was hidden for ages past but now has been revealed in Christ that that marriage union between Adam and Eve was God's picture of what would be Christ and his church. Which, by the way, I am uncomfortable with using terminology about the church age as a parenthesis plan and God's plan for Israel as though this wasn't the plan from Genesis 2. This is what God has been working towards, this great mystery of this union between Christ and his people. This forever covenantal union that nothing and no one can separate or break up. Do you see what I mean? That's Christocentricity. And it's not just me saying we should do it or some other theologian says, hey, let's interpret our Bible Christocentrically. This is what we see the apostles doing. You imagine how exciting it would be to be like the Apostle Paul and be raised in Judaism and being taught weekly the law and the prophets and the writings and, then, and rejecting the Messiah, but then all of a sudden God saves you and the Spirit is in you and all of a sudden you read that Old Testament and you're like, Whoa, can you imagine? Have you ever discovered something in the Bible you didn't see before? Maybe even something major. Now all of a sudden you see it almost on every page or whatever. Imagine that. Imagine like all of a sudden you would just want to leap back into all of those scrolls and be unfolding them and like, oh, that's what that was about. Oh, that's what that was about. It was all pointing to the Christ when all things would be... uh, connected in him, about him. He is the one, as he said himself, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fill them up, to fulfill them in myself, you see. So there's a way of reading the old Bible. This is biblical. And this will keep us from just reading the Old Testament as a bunch of stories that are either, you know, maybe we don't even think are relevant to us. This will help us read the Bible with edification, as the Spirit guides us into seeing Christ and the plan of God for the ages, okay? All right, well, I'm not going to bring out anything else from Ezra this week. We'll just save that for next time. It also puts me ahead of time, but let me just open it up. Any thoughts on that or any questions that I may or may not be able to or choose to answer? because I don't have everything figured out myself. Matthew. So, I, I like how you're bringing that starting from Genesis. Yeah. You're talking about the church. I don't really see the 
go with Abraham, right? But where God's like, you know, look at the heavens, look at all the stars. Sure. Okay, now when we say church, that's where I would say, I'm of the opinion the church did not begin until Acts chapter 2. So what we know as the one new man in Christ begins in Acts chapter 2. Yeah, and I'm saying, though, what you're seeing isn't necessarily the fullness of anything in any one passage, but all of these things are pointing towards the fulfillment of those things in Christ. You see what I mean? So, so it isn't as though even the first, the Jews before Christ would have been able to read that and see Christ and his church there. That was a mystery. A word mystery, uh, of course, in the New Testament means something that God knows, but he doesn't make known to us until later. So we can look back now and see that mystery. That's what I mean by that. That's what Paul was doing. Because none of his Jewish uh, comrades who didn't believe in Jesus would have accepted his understanding of the mystery of Christ in the church in Ephesians 5. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, Bill. Well, we have, we have the advantage of understanding the word Messiah uh, because we have the New Testament and we understand uh, Christ's sacrifice on the cross and all of that. Yeah. But when the Jews would read Genesis 3, talking about one who would come, mm. what, what would be their concept of it? I mean, certainly it's not as we understand it today, Yes, because we have God's Word that clarifies that. Mm-hmm. How would they have interpreted that? Yeah. I mean, because their Genesis would have been their history. Mm-hmm. So were they looking for a warrior king? I mean, Yeah, I think that's what we see, right? I think what they were thinking was always in terms of Israel's centricity. Somehow they missed, or they seemed to miss, and we're broad brushing here, but it does seem like they, they seemed to miss the, the uh, international plan of bringing in the nations, right? Uh, because even in the early church, they struggled with this. You read through that in the book of Acts. Like saved Jews were struggling with this idea that the gospel is going now to the nations and they are being grafted into this vine and, and recipients of these promises and blessings of the Christ. Okay, so when they're, but when they're reading the Old Testament, they're thinking Christ and they're mainly thinking king and they're thinking kingdom. Uh, over which their Christ will reign and uh, restore their, their nation. Where they stumbled largely, right? What Paul says, what was their big stumbling block is a suffering Messiah for sins. A crucified Messiah is where they, they stumbled. Um, they could, they, they, this is one of the reasons Jesus, as he's doing these miraculous things would say that strange thing like don't tell anybody about this because what would happen is they would go spread it to the other Jews and they'd say our Messiah's come because that was a period of time in God's uh, plan in that Roman Empire at that time in Israel of this heightened anticipation for the Messiah like it was heightened they were ready for him to come in and deliver them from Rome all that kind of stuff but that wasn't the purpose of his miracles and he had to go to the cross you see so it's like 
that's where they stumble at. They stumble at the, the concept of a suffering Messiah to the extent that I've been told that they bypass Isaiah 53 in their weekly readings in some synagogues that so clearly talks about a suffering Messiah. They bypass it. Now, I've been told that, but I uh, didn't know it for sure, but I've been told and read that. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, one more maybe? Yeah, probably yeah, probably tied into that and how they could think that, you know, like the author of the Hebrews says, has to say the, uh, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And Missy David saying things like offering and sacrifice you do not desire. That wasn't the point of it. Right. So, yeah. Oh, that's okay. Uh, when they enter into a contract with somebody else, they would cut the goat, mm-hmm. cut yeah. them loose or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they didn't, they could do that even nowadays. Mm. That's a term they use all the time, but still, yeah. they didn't see it with God and man. Yeah, right. Yeah, good. Good. So, yes, sir. Jason. Yeah. And with that being said, that's uh, leading us uh, to right. salvation. But the day is coming when, when the covenant people will realize him who they have pierced. What will that be to their end? If it's salvation for us, what will it be to them except for resurrection, resurrection from the dead? Yeah. So when they realize Jesus is their Messiah, it's, it's going to be incredible. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think that, you know, it's Jeremiah that talks about, uh, is it Jeremiah? They're going to look on him whom they pierce and they're going to mourn. And there's a picture there. Is that Jeremiah? Ezekiel? I don't know. I don't have my Google in front of me. But um, there's this picture of each one going off by himself or herself and mourning and weeping that they see this, right? And I personally hold to the fact that it sure seems to me there's going to be some kind of, of national revival among the Jewish people in the future times. And, um, and many historians have held to that for a long time, and I, I happen to believe it, especially looking through uh, Romans 9 through 11 again, which is, is uh, I think, insightful there. And this idea that God is, he hasn't left them off, okay? However, they need to be brought into the new covenant, um, they are under clearly divine chastisement with, this is controversial, but no right to that land right now. They violated the Deuteronomic covenant that God said, if you do this, I will drive you out of the land. Okay, so all of those things are true. And yet God, Paul says, is still reserving a remnant, which is interesting. You could visit any like major city uh, probably in the U.S., and you would find Jewish people, people that could def- trace their descendancy to Abraham. You couldn't find a Hittite or a Girgashite or an Amorite or a Moabite or any of the. You can't do that. Well, I think that that's one reason we can see Scripture as being true is because God is promised to preserve, and he's doing that. And the gospel does, did go to the Jews first and also to the Greek. And, um, 
You always got to be careful. You, you want to be careful when you talk about the Jews because Jesus is one. And so is his mom. And so he takes that very personally and seriously, right? So, but he's got, a, he's, got a, he's got a plan for them in the future. That's good. Well, let's pray. Thank you for being attentive tonight and hope this was a, a profit to you. Father, thank you for your word. Even though we agree with Paul uh, in, in Romans 11, some of these things are past finding out. Yet you have given us so much to think about and consider and to know and to be sure of and certain of. And so we praise you for this. I I just ask that because we know that the Spirit glorifies Christ, we want to see him as we should throughout all of Scripture and see how it applies to us and enjoy all of our Bibles. And so I pray that you would enable us to do that. And I ask it in the name of Jesus.